That's the answers that we seek. But he also asks the questions we need to hear. Let's get close enough to listen to his wisdom and also be ready with our answer when the Jesus question comes our way. to get out of this message. It's kind of a, it's a powerful question, isn't it? Because just by my asking that question, it kind of invites you to think about whether you are going to just show up here like a consumer who's kind of going to rate the sermon, like judge the preacher and talk about it at lunch, or whether you might consider opening yourself to whatever God has for you. And be open even, or would you be open to God changing your life? And did you notice that so far all I've done is ask you five questions? And did you see what I did there when I just made it six, seven, and eight? Questions are powerful, aren't they? As I hope the one I asked you to begin with. Maybe changes the experience you'll have in the next few minutes. Questions are powerful, and the right question at the right time can unlock stony hearts and engage our brains in ways that we wouldn't otherwise engage. A lot of you, uh, a lot of you know my daughter Ellie. Um, when when we're on a road trip or taking vacation or something like that together, I want what almost every dad wants. I want to connect with my kids and so forth. So I've got a thing. You might think it's stupid or cheesy or whatever, but I literally got a list of questions on my phone. And we'll be down the road, and I'll be like, I'll like hand the phone to her and say, pick one, let's go. And we'll and we'll just start talking about questions. So you know, we'll, we'll what would a what would a perfect day be like for you? And we'll just talk about that. Uh, what's your dream vacation? Who's a friend you wish you could spend more time with right now? If you could change something about the way you were raised, what would it be? Careful with that one. Uh, What's one of your biggest failures in the last year, and what do you think God is wanting you to learn from that? What's one of your most treasured memories? What's one of your most terrible memories? When have you felt really close to God, and why? See these questions. You see how that opens up conversation. That's what questions can do. More than me telling her something I want her to think ever will. Questions. It's what Edgar Schein calls the fine art of drawing someone out. Questions have a a way of fostering deeper connection and deeper thinking, really, than telling ever will. Which just makes us wonder right off the bat here, maybe you can think of someone, can you? In your life, Someone you have a relationship with where that relationship might be strengthened or deepened if you would just get a little more intentional and better at asking more questions. Can you think of someone that would benefit if you asked more questions and then waited for the answer? See what I did there? Asked you another question. Did you notice that? 
Do you think I can preach this whole sermon just by asking questions? Are you tired of me asking questions? Would you like me to stop? Every counselor knows that questions are so important. It doesn't matter if I know clearly what you need to do to take a step, to move forward, to make a change. It doesn't matter if I know what's the best way for me to get you to own it and feel it and rise up from within you and decide to do it. What do I need to do? I need to ask a question that will get you there. In business, we know this. Uh, creativity is spawned by the right questions around problem-solving teams. Uh, every lawyer knows that if you want to, whether you're talking to the jury, the judge, or, or a witness, it's questions that hold the power. Uh, educators know this. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, giving answers is what teachers sometimes want to do, but the the wise ones know it's it's asking questions. You've heard of the Socratic method. It's named after Socrates, that wise Greek philosopher, because those Greeks. But he he would ask questions when everyone else was just giving answers in the rhetoric of the day. He would ask question after question after question, circle until until he had you. Parents know the importance of asking questions. If a little girl punches her brother in the nose, She can say, that's wrong, stop punching, go to your room. Or she can ask a question and say, hmm, I wonder, how do you suppose your brother feels right now? And if that girl begins to think reflectively about that at all, another question might be just as good. And how do you really feel right now? And which approach do you suppose will be more helpful to that little girl so she might grow up realizing that punching isn't her way to get through life? You see? The power of a question. Because if I just tell you what I want you to hear, it may pass in and out of your head and never stick. But when I, when I ask a question, it sort of forces us to engage. Like when you're sitting in class and you're just like droning on and the teacher's like, wah, 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 wah. And then it's like, what do you think, Mr. Kacharis? And I'm like, what? All of a sudden I'm alert and I'm engaged and there I am. Because of the power of a question. Which is why Einstein is the one who said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, and my life depended on the solution, I would spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. I don't know if I, if I could, maybe I need 30-30 on those. I, I need a little more time when I'm solving the problem myself, but it's a good point. Here's what I don't know if all of us fully appreciate. Do you know that Jesus knows all of this? that we're talking about. And Jesus asks really good questions. Really good questions. I used to think of Jesus as the guy with all the answers. But the more you read the scripture, the more you realize, wow, you know what? The more you walk with him, the more more I discover he's the one with some amazing questions, penetrating questions, probing questions, sometimes haunting questions, sometimes seemingly unanswerable questions that draw us in, connect to him, and force us, force us to not only respond to the question, but to respond to him. And so we're in this series, we're beginning right, right now, called The Jesus Question, which is all about that. Responding not just to the question, but to Jesus Himself, to the Jesus question. Because, see, when sometimes when we when we ask a question, we're seeking information for ourselves. But when Jesus asks a question, He's seeking transformation for someone else. Let me say that again. When we ask questions, a lot of times what we're doing is we're seeking information for ourselves. When Jesus asks a question, 
He's seeking transformation in you. So these questions, don't just check them off or check out, but listen carefully because Jesus has some questions for you. And as you engage with him and these questions, you'll discover that he wants the same thing I wanted with my daughter, <laughs> to draw you and him together, to restore relationship and get you on down the road together. So if you open your Bible and look around, you're going to find some 300 questions Jesus asked. 300. Picture that. Wow, it's like a four-year-old at the dinner table. I mean, seriously, 300 questions probing. And like a Zen master, like, like a rabbi prophet teacher that he is, like Socrates himself, he comes with these questions. And 2,000 years later, they still hang in the air. They still require our attention and our answers. And so just listen for a moment. Just listen to some of the, the questions that Jesus asks. When his disciples were weighing whether it was really worth it to give up stuff in order to follow Jesus. Jesus said, well, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? That's a good question. Some of us need to wrestle with that question. Jesus healed a guy and forgave him of his sins, but some of the religious leaders wagged their fingers and said, no, no, I don't think that's right. It was a Sabbath. You shouldn't have done it. And Jesus just looked right at him and asked, what are you thinking in your heart right now? When his friends were all stressed out, he asked them, can any of you, by worrying, really add a single moment to your life? It's a great question. When Mary went to the tomb to find dead Jesus, risen Jesus stood next to her, tapped her on the shoulder and said, why are you crying? <laughs> There's a lot there. When people start turning away from Jesus because he wasn't as popular anymore and it was getting hard, Jesus turned to the ones that remained and he asked a question, which, uh, do you also want to leave? We need to wrestle with that. He told that story of the man who went down the road and got beat up, left in the ditch, and some guys passed by on the other side, but one guy stopped and helped him, took care of him and blessed him, and Jesus asked, which one do you suppose was the real neighbor here? Hmm, what do you think? And when the crowds showed up by the thousands. Jesus said, get them something to eat. And they said, we can't. We don't know how. This is too expensive. We don't know. He said, what do you got in your hands? How many loaves do you have in your hands right now? Let's start there. And when he was moving down the road, crowds were jostling around him and pressing and bumping next to him. And, and in the middle of that, that woman in desperate need dove down and touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus wheeled around and stopped and said, who touched me? And in a moment of singular focus, it's just Jesus and that woman locking eyes, and the question has come to her, and she has to call herself out before Jesus. I hope all that happens to you and to me today and in the next few weeks as we just let Jesus ask us a question and penetrate and probe into the depths of our hearts so you can connect with him more deeply. And here's the question of today where we're beginning. Are you ready for it? Here's the question. Why are you so afraid? Why? Why are you so afraid? That's the question today. We're afraid of a lot of things, aren't we? Man, there's lots to be afraid of. I was, I was with a missionary friend who used to live in the States. Now he lives abroad, and he comes back every two or three years, and I always ask him, what do you see that's different about us? And he's like, the last time you know what he said? He said, you guys are all so afraid of everything, like everywhere. 
really interesting. We are. We're, we're afraid of change. We're afraid of not being in control. We're afraid of meeting new people. We're afraid of school shootings. We're, we're, we're afraid of not having enough money. We're afraid of global catastrophe. We're afraid, afraid of environmental disaster or nuclear war. We're, 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 afraid, we're afraid of losing things, aren't we? We're afraid of losing our keys and our health and our minds and our pets and our loved ones and our kids and our homes and our jobs and our strength and our reputation and even our hair. Too late for some of us. We worry about the past. We're worried about the future. There's anxiety about our country and the world that our kids will inherit. Some of us wonder if we'll ever find love. Some of us are afraid of missing out on what others seem to be experiencing in life because their Instagram page, you know. We worry about the mole on our back and we worry about Judgment Day. We worry if we'll ever change. We worry if someone will find out about us. See, fear is so powerful, isn't it? Fear can suck you dry, leave you withered, leave you weak, rob your joy, steal your contentment. It's powerful. So think for a moment about something you're afraid of right now. Maybe the thing you're most afraid of. Think for that. Just let it into your mind and think about how you feel about it. What are you afraid of and what do you, how do you feel about it? Got something? Now, now just imagine if it could be lifted, gone, you're free. Which way do you suppose Jesus wants you to live? Which way do you suppose? What if faith rather than fear became your default when you're faced with the worries and the stresses of life? What if you had a faith so strong it was like a magnet that pulled out every little shard of fear right out of your heart and you were clear? What if? What if you lived under the banner of faith rather than fear and cling to that kind of a God? When Jesus asked the questions, why are you so afraid? It's like he's forcing us to realize we can choose between clinging to fear or faith. Here's the deal. How full of fear you are is directly related to how full of faith you are. And Jesus wants us to know that. Turns out you can't really be full of both faith and fear at the same time because one has a way of pushing the other out. There's only so much space in your heart, as it were. And if we have little faith, then we got lots to be afraid of and fearful about. But if you're full of faith, well, then you're fearless. So in your Bible, if you want to open it, Matthew chapter 8, you can, uh, you got a little Bible app. This is a good time to check it out. Matthew chapter 8, or get your Bible out, or we'll put the words on the screen as well and follow along. Matthew chapter 8, this is a busy time in Jesus' life. He's running all over with his disciples. They're healing. They're doing all these amazing things, teaching and all that stuff. It's the time when they could really use a break, ready to just take a little chill and just relax. And so they decide to go out for a nice little boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, right, to get away from it all. Well, check out what happens. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 and following. Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. So far, so good. However, without warning... A fierce storm suddenly struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. Great. Isn't that the way it goes sometimes? Just when you could really use a break, things get worse. And a storm hits. Maybe some of you have been out on the bay in bad weather. 
like in a, in a boat or something. It's, it's, it'll scare you. I was out in a 14-foot 14 14 Lumacraft Luma boat one time, three-and-a-half horsepower, big waves, wind, uh, not on the bay but on the lake in Minnesota. My gosh, I, I thought we were done for. You know, struck by lightning. I thought, this is it. We're going down. It's scary. It feels very, very scary. And that's what's going on here. So there they were out for a dinner cruise, but now they're in a white-knuckled epic, okay? And Matthew uses a very powerful word here to describe the storm. Remember, he's there. Okay, so he, he can hear the sail snapping against the mast. He can feel the, the mist in his face and see the stuff like sliding across the deck back and forth as the waves throw this little boat around. And the word he uses is not the usual word for downpour. It's not the word for squall. It's a word for like tempest, like huge storm, like this massive. In the Greek word, it's the, it's the word, in the Greek language, it's the word seismos. Try saying it. Seismos. Seismos is this massive thing. It's huge. It's when the whole earth is rumbling and quivering and quaking. We still use the word in our language in English today. A seismologist is someone who studies earthquakes with a seismograph because that measures how big things are heaving and shaking and breaking. A seismos is something that shakes you to the core. And we all, man, we all know about seismos in our lives, don't we? We all do. We all know about those storms, those scary things, and, it's, and even the ones like this that come up suddenly out of nowhere. You're, all, you're just floating along in life on a placid reality, and then the phone rings, and it's like, we want you to come in for more tests, and all of a sudden, you're bailing, and in white caps, seismos, right? Suddenly, stuff can come up. I had a, a friend, one of my former teachers, died abruptly, unexpectedly last week, and his family is, they're, they're in seismos with water coming over the gunwales, crashing in the waves, and seismos. Scary. Now, I hope you notice something really important here. These disciples, they were following Jesus. They were trying to do the right thing. They were being obedient. They were, they're, they're as much as you want to say, they're good guys, okay? They're in the boat with Jesus. And then the storm arises. Don't miss this. Because some of us, we sort of, we sort of think, it's, it's like the Bible doesn't say, well, the disciples are with Jesus and a great storm battered their boat and they knew immediately how God must be displeased with them. No, that's not what storms mean. Or they know that God was punishing them because of the storm. No, it doesn't say that. No, that's not what's going on here. We've got to stop thinking like that. These guys are in the boat with Jesus, doing the right thing, obeying him, working with him. They got in the boat with Jesus. And some of us think, well, so what's supposed to happen is if, I get in, if I'm with Jesus, I'm trying to do the right, I'm, I'm on God's side or I'm a Christian, you know, then, then it should read something like, and suddenly a great rainbow appeared in the sky and a flock of doves came and spelled out the words, you're special. And one of the, one of the disciples grabbed a guitar and they strummed a, cr- a tune as they floated along. No, that's not the, that's not the way it is. F- signing up with Jesus isn't for a life of Caribbean cruises. It's just not the way it is. It's not. And so don't miss the plain truth that getting on board with Jesus doesn't mean sunny skies every day. It means, in fact, you might get soaked. You might get scared. The world, you, there might be this seismic storm. It, Jesus said, in this world, you'll have plenty of trouble. Those are words of Jesus. So we got to get out of this notion that somebody keeps talking about somewhere about, well, I don't understand why all these bad things are happening to me. I I'm, I'm a Christian. So I know plenty of Christ followers that got the flu this season, okay? 
Jesus people, they lose their jobs, they struggle with addictions, they fight temptation, like everybody else. They make trips to the hospital and their companies downsize. And sometimes they get in the boat with Jesus and then a seismos arises and they get, you know, they bury their children and, 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 and their house burns down. You know, there are plenty of opportunities for fear. But here's the deal. Being in the boat with Jesus doesn't mean you're not going to face storms. But listen, friends, it does mean you don't have to be afraid in the same way ever again. Because even in the storm, you know this, that God is able. Everybody say, God is able. God is able, and God is with us. God is able, and God is with us. And that changes everything, you see. God is able, and God is with us. The God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, is able, and he is with us. This is why Psalm 23, verse 4. Remember that? The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. And it comes to verse 4. And remember it says, even when I walk through the darkest valley of death itself, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't say, because God is my shepherd, I know I'll never go through a valley like that. It doesn't say that, folks. We've got to stop assuming that. Christians are at their best and our strongest when we realize, you know what? I will go through that dark valley just like every other human who's ever walked the planet goes through a dark valley. You will. If you haven't, some of you are there right now. But when you do, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because he is strong and he is able and he is with you. My, my God, he is with me and his rod and his staff, they comfort me. That's the difference. Inviting Jesus into your life doesn't mean you won't face scary storms. It does completely change how you weather them. Completely. So you can cling to faith more than fear because he is able and he's with us. Changes everything. Matthew 8, verse 24. The waves crashing over the boat. You're in the middle of your seismos. Hey, check this out. Jesus was sleeping. The fishermen who are in the boat every day they're freaked out. The carpenter is asleep in the back of the boat, in the stern, a little enclosed area. Mark says he's probably resting his head on one of those little leather ballast bags, taking a siesta. And they're not having it. They're freaked out, a little, little upset with it all. And so verse 25, the disciples, they, they're waking him up, shaking him, and they're like, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. They're probably a little ticked. In Mark's accounting of this story, you'll read it in Mark chapter 4, it says that the disciples woke Jesus up and said, don't you care that we're drowning? You're out there healing some guy's hand. Great, what good is that? We're going down. Don't you care? And that's what, that's what fear does to you, is it, makes, it calls into question the goodness and the character of God himself. Fear forces us to kind of be a sort of consumed with the storm and our own situation. It forces a kind of self-preservationist selfishness. Maybe you can relate to the feeling, God, don't you care? You can relate to that feeling. I've certainly prayed those kinds of prayers. Listen, it's easy to have faith when the sun is shining, but if you think about it, that ain't faith at all because you're in control and you're just floating along and you think you've got the world by the tail. That's not faith. But when you're afraid because of the storm, all of a sudden you've got an opportunity to either see your faith grow or watch it wash overboard. Fear can then come along in that opportunity and make you question the very character of God. We're getting swamped here. Don't you even care? It can erode your faith. Listen, 
The reason we think that sometimes is, is it just makes us kind of selfish. Like, if God really cared, I wouldn't be in this storm. That's how we think. Because fear won't let us focus on the big picture. It won't let us focus on God. It won't let us focus on anything but the waves and what we're feeling and the pain and the sorrow and the fear of losing something. Tells us we're all alone and God can't do anything or isn't doing anything. I know this is hard to talk about for some of you because you feel like God's sleeping through your storm right now. Or you're wondering. You feel like if God cared, you'd get that job. You'd, you'd have more money. You, you wouldn't be having to go back to the doctor or what have you. But our faith tells us that when the stormy winds of fear are swirling around your head and when the waves of doubt are crashing into your life and, and when the rain of worry is, is filling up and washing over the gunwales and you're in the middle of seismos, it's in that moment that the question matters the most. Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, stands up, looks at you and says, why are you so afraid? You have so little faith. And then, then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. I've rebuked the weather a time or two myself, actually. <laughs> Jesus has a different result when he does it. And suddenly, it was completely calm. And the disciples were amazed, saying, oh my goodness. They were more terrified now than they were with the storm because they realized they were in the presence of this guy who makes the wind and the waves obey. And they felt foolish for their fear because they saw now how big, not the storm was, but how big Jesus was. Because next to Jesus, the power of the storm seemed small and weak. They had been looking at the storm and what they needed to be doing was looking at Jesus. Where are you looking? Are you looking at your storm? Are you looking at the one who's able and with you? Because it will make all the difference in the middle of the storm. Now, notice something else important here. The first thing Jesus does is he speaks to the disciples. Before he speaks to the storm, he talks to you. This is true in my life. I've noticed this true. Um, when there's a storm and I'm calling out to him in fear, help me, Jesus. Uh, stop it, Jesus. Make the pain go away, Jesus. Uh, solve this problem. Don't let this happen. I'm scared. We're drowning. Help, help, help. Before he does anything about the storm, he speaks to me. He'll do the same for you. Sometimes he then calms the storm or does something miraculous. Sometimes he doesn't. But either way, the first thing he does is still the storm inside of me. Jesus can calm the storm. But even if the storm still rages, he can calm the storm in you. Jesus isn't freaked out by our storms. He's calm as a cucumber, asleep in the, asleep in the stern. And if you call him to stop the storm, it may go away. He, he'll remind you that he's able and he's with you and he can calm the storm, first of all, in you. And we are at our best, not when we preach a word that says, hey, follow Jesus and you got sunny lakeside of the rest of your life, because that's not true. We're at our best when we realize that somehow there is this thing that Paul calls a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't even make rational sense. 
You talk to people, it's like they're going through all this stuff, and it's like somehow they have this deep and abiding confidence and strength. Yes, life still hurts. Yeah, they're still having a storm. Yes, something's happening that I don't understand or control or don't like, but they have this peace that passes understanding. They have a joy that isn't tied to their circumstances. What's that about? It's called knowing there's a God who's able and with you in the middle of the storm. That's when we're at our best. That's where we need to get. Why are you so afraid, Jesus wants to say to help us get there. When I was a lifeguard back in the day, I, in high school and college, I was a lifeguard. You can probably picture that. You probably thought that already. <laughs> a life, you know, whistle around my neck, little bullhorn in my hand, tan, sculpted body, rippling muscles. You know, you, you, you imagine. You know, use your imagination. I'm sitting there, and, and I'm watching these kids uh, swim in this lake, you know, shallow end, deep end. And um, I usually kind of watch over here in the deep end because that's where the greater risk is. I remember this one little girl. She's in like fourth grade. She's playing like thigh deep water uh, with some of her friends. I could tell she'd hardly ever been in water. You could just tell by watching them. They didn't know what they were doing. And daddy's little goggles and they were putting their goggles on and kind of looking down, putting their face right down by the water so they could kind of see, watch their feet and see the fish swim and all that. And giggling and laughing, having a great time. Well, something happened. I, I guess she apparently stuck her head down a little too deep and she inhaled some water. Oh, my goodness, she started to choke and sputter and cough, and she came up gagging, staggering, waving her arms wildly. And when she finally caught her breath, she looked up at me. She says, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. She's like 10 feet away from me right down here, standing in knee-deep water. I'm drowning. And from her perspective, it was terrifying, and she thought she was dying. From my perspective, it was kind of funny. Tried to have compassion for the little girl. I said, you know, I said, I think, wait a second. I think you might not be drowning. I think you're just choking for a moment. <clears throat> I think you're going to be okay. Because the fact is that little girl was never in any real danger at all. She was standing in water barely over her knees with people all around her. And I was 10 feet away. Could easily have swooped in to get her because I was able and I was with her. And I think we've got to view our lives that way. Whatever is going on, because Christian witness for 2,000 years has said that there is no earthly situation that is so terrible. Scripture promises there is no suffering so great. Jesus lets us know that there is no hardship so difficult, so fear, no fear so great that it has power to move you outside of God's watchful eye, his swimming area. He is able and he is with you. And whether it's finances or flunking grades or some failing health problem. You can trust your lifeguard who's watching over your life day and night. How full of faith you are and how full of fear you are are directly related. Now, let's, let's talk about something else for a moment because this is important. The strength and stability of your faith is only as strong as the object you're placing your faith in. Does that make sense? Faith is only as strong as the object you're putting your faith in. Faith isn't about you trying to be, a, I'm going to have a lot of faith, <clears throat> like i got to grunt it up, like it has something to do with you. No. That's how a lot of people think. It's wrong. Faith is only as strong as the object that I put my faith in. Does that make sense? If we're in a plane, we're up in a plane, you and I, we're, playing, we're flying down there, up in the sky, and all of a sudden the pilot passes out. Oh, great. And you just turn to me and you say, Ben, I trust you. I'm putting my faith in you to land this plane. What's that? That's dumb. Okay? That's death. 
that is twisted metal and a fire on the ground shortly. Might as well just pick up their phone and call your family and tell them you love them because we're going down. Because I am with you, but I am not able. I do not know how to fly or land planes. Faith is only as strong as the object you're placing your faith in. But if there's a pilot who's a veteran on that plane, who hears the trouble and stands up and walks to the front, and you learn that this guy has made 10,000 landings. He, in fact, designed that cockpit. He's an instructor, and just last week he made seven of these landings with his eyes closed, and he slips into the cockpit and grabs the controls. How do you feel now? Slightly better. And your faith is stronger, not because of you, but because of the object that you're placing your faith in. And friends, we say we trust in God. We say we believe in Jesus. We say we think the Holy Spirit's real and powerful. But when the pilot passes out in our world and it looks like the plane might be going down, we run up and down the aisle screaming and yelling and calling our family because we don't know what to do. And I'm just saying, Jesus comes and says, why are you so afraid? The object of your faith is strong, is present, is able, is with us. It's a question that's meant to draw our hearts up and decide to put faith in the place where fear has been dominating and to say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, you know what? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress. He's my stronghold and my life protecting me from danger. I don't need to be afraid of anything or anyone. As 2 Timothy says, God did not give you a spirit of fear and timidity. No, that comes from some other place, not from God. God gave you a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So here's the question again. When Matt, Mark says it this way, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, fear and faith are inversely related. They're inversely proportional. You know, in physics, we would represent it this way with an equation. As one goes up, the other goes down. And you get to decide which one is going to occupy the space in your heart, fear or faith. Jesus isn't saying if you have more faith, you won't have storms. He's saying, wow, that's a bad storm, and you have a lot of fear. But your fear isn't because of the size of the storm. Your fear is because of the size of your faith. And if your faith in him grows, there's a sense in which your fears shrink. So what's consuming you more these days? Fear? Or faith? And what do you want it to be? What do you suppose Jesus wants it to be for you? It can't be both fear and faith. And I think this question for me is meant to draw me into tighter relationship of trust with God, but also just to, to not just muster up trust, but to know that I'm protected by the loving arms of Jesus. As we said earlier in our service, I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. It's his love that upholds you. When you know you're held by a loving, protective, able God, then no matter what is going on around you, you don't have to be afraid. First John says it this way, there is no fear in love. Perfect love of God casts out fear. So the decision for faith, it is a decision to let yourself be loved by God. So as we close, would you just let some of the words of Jesus and his thoughts about fear just wash over you for a moment?
21 times Jesus gave a command that was the most frequently, frequently, frequent command he ever gave. You know what it was? Fear not, don't be afraid. Could you just listen for a moment? When you're worried about your self-worth, Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't be afraid, you're worth so much. When you're worried about terrible things you've done or rottenness in your heart, Jesus says in Matthew 9, take courage, even your sins can be forgiven. When you can't stop worrying about money or clothes or appearances, Jesus says, don't worry about all that. Whether you have enough, I'm enough. When you wonder if God is really in control of your health, Luke 8 reminds us, don't be afraid. Everyone can be made well. We're trying to, hard to walk with Jesus and feel ourselves sinking down like Peter did. Jesus shows up and says, take courage. I'm here, to, I'm here with you. And when the global news freaks us out, Jesus says, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Don't be alarmed. When school shootings scare us, Matthew 10 reminds us, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but they can't really kill the soul. And when we're facing even death itself, Jesus says, oh, don't let your hearts be troubled. Even then, don't, don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I'll come to get you that you may always be where I am. Jesus is trying really hard to say over and over again what he hopes will come up from within us as an answer to the question, why are you so afraid? And that is that I'm not because he's able and he's with me. We want to share a time of communion now to close, which is a perfect way at all of our campuses to, to just bring all this to closure. And, and as, you, as you have a few moments right now of quiet, reflective communion means connecting with God, maybe you just let him ask you this question, whisper in your ear, why are you afraid? And surrender your fears and let it its place be filled with faith in the one who beat our worst enemy, death. The bread and the cup as they come down and you take those, all believers in Jesus are invited to participate in this meal. Those little emblems, they don't just represent his death, they represent his resurrection and his living self. And this is the one who even conquers death, who says, and tell me now what you're afraid of. Let's see what we can do about that. Let's pray together. God, we ask for your presence here now. We ask you to melt some of our fears with your perfect love, to cast it out. We know that you've never failed us. Your word still stands and your faithfulness is great. So I pray that the one who is most crippled by fear will walk in faith. The one who's blinded by fear will see how strong you are. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your strength and your presence, that you're able and with us. So meet us now in this time, we pray.